Father, what a joy to call you our Father, to know that you have adopted us, to know that you have accepted us, to know that you are our refuge and shield about us. Thank you for all that you are, for who you've revealed yourself to be. Calls us to trust you, calls us to cling to you with everything that we are. And as we ask you to speak to us, as we open your word and look for you to speak to us, Lord, I acknowledge that there are There are some passages in Scripture that are very difficult to understand. For passages like that, I pray that you would grant us illumination, understanding, but I acknowledge this is not one of those passages. Lord, I acknowledge there are some passages in your word that are hard to believe. For those passages, I pray you'd give us faith, but I acknowledge this is not one of those passages. This is a passage, Lord that is hard to obey. And so for this passage, I pray that you would give us faith to be doers of your word and not merely hearers. I pray that as we see what you say, as we see what you command, that our hearts would leap at the opportunity to obey you. Lord, let obeying you be our delight, be our joy, for we want nothing else than to please you, our Father. So as we encounter the clear, straightforward teaching of your word, would you give us faith and would you give us obedience that we would be doers of your word and not merely hearers? I pray that for my heart, I pray that for my church family today, that you would help us to be obeying you trusting you, doing what you say, that you might be pleased, that you might be glorified. I pray that you would speak to us by the power of your word. Change us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so, Lord, let faith rise. Let our eyes see. Let us behold your glory. And help us prepare us for the Lord's Supper. We pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. With a desire to hear God speak, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, if you need to grab a a pew Bible in front of you, the hardback Bible, this will be on page 948 of that hardback Bible, 948. So in our study of the book of Romans, we're going to consider Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. What a joy to study God's word together this morning. In this passage, Paul is going to continue his rapid-fire commands to show us what it looks like to offer ourselves fully to God by His incredible mercies. This is what it looks like to be transformed, to have our minds renewed. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, this is the word of our God. God says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the authoritative word of our God. May he make it sweeter than honey to our lips. Well, sadly, the world in which we live is filled with hate and evil and injustice. There is no shortage of examples of how we are wronged by other people in the church, in our families, in our workplaces, and in every other sphere of our lives. But the question is, how do you respond when you are hurt or offended? How do you respond when you are hurt or offended? You will be wronged in this life. There will be evil done against you. There will be injustice done against you. But how do you respond when it happens? Well, if you're anything like me, your response is to want to pay that person back who hurt you and make them feel it and see how they feel about it, right? What goes around comes around is what we used to say. Mess around and find out is the more modern saying. See, I have this intrinsic desire to get even and settle the score and make people pay. In fact, I don't want to just get even. I want to get a one-up, right? But that is not... How a Christian is to respond to the evil done to them. Jesus himself calls us to forgive those who harm us. Even to love our enemies. Which seems impossible. Paul summarizes what the Bible teaches on this subject, I think, in verse 21 of our text. In fact, I think this is the summary of what he's saying in these verses. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. In other words, don't give in to evil. Don't let evil conquer you, but rather do what? Overcome evil with good. In other words, we aren't to let bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and vengeance grip us and consume us, but we are to conquer evil by doing good. The way we overcome evil is not by giving in to it, but by doing good. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to a higher road than the road of retaliation and settling scores. We are to follow in the footsteps of the one who was reviled, but did not revile in return. Vengeance is not our job. Now, this is a really difficult way to live that cuts against our natural inclinations. And so we especially need to pay careful attention to the teaching of this passage. We need God to build these categories and lay this foundation deep inside of us, not so just that we would understand what God's asking us to do, but so that we would actually do what God says to do. Now listen, Paul never said that offering ourselves as living sacrifices was going to be easy. In fact, the point of a sacrifice is that the sacrifice dies. And so here's a way we must die to ourselves and our natural inclinations. If we're going to give ourselves fully to God, if we're going to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, here's a way that we must die to ourselves 
Here's a way to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Verses 14 through 21 here, Paul continues addressing how we're to relate to one another in the church, but he also broadens that teaching to include how we relate to all people, even those who wrong us, even those who offend us. I want to organize the commands of this passage into five countercultural instructions for us. Five countercultural instructions. Here's number one. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Look at verse 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. And in case that's not clear enough, look at how he says it again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So Paul assumes that we will be persecuted as we follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus promised his followers that persecution is inevitable. If they persecuted our Savior, they will persecute us if we seek to be faithful to Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12, all believers should know this text. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to be godly will be persecuted. Not might be, not could be, but will be persecuted. Not only will people misunderstand us and marginalize us, but people will be downright evil in, making our, in seeking to make our lives miserable. And what's our usual response to that? Again, my fleshly response is to want to curse them. How dare they? They deserve to be punished. They deserve my anger. Paul says the way of the Christian is to bless those who harm us. I assume by bless here, Paul means more than just not hate them. He means to actually do them good in practical ways. To bless them, to be a blessing to them is what we're called to. In fact, verse 20 confirms this, that Paul is thinking of bless as actually doing practical good to them because he says... If your enemy is hungry, let him starve. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. You feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. So it's not just don't pay them back, but it's actually practically do good to them. Bless those who persecute you requires you to treat the person far better than they deserve. Do good to them. Provide for their needs. Take care of them as you would your friend. Indeed, as you would yourself. There are countless examples in church history of this behavior. I've heard stories of martyrs who would speak blessing over their killers just before they were burned at the stake or sent into the arena. There are stories of missionaries who shared the last bit of their food and water, not just with their friends, but with those who beat and tortured them. Such a courageous response to wrongs done should be inspiring to us because we get angry over simply someone inconveniencing us and threatening our rights. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 31 Our Savior gives us these instructions. In fact, many scholars think Paul is fleshing out Jesus' teaching in Luke 6. But listen to what Jesus says. Okay, Remember, this is is King Jesus. This is sovereign and sufficient Jesus. And he says to us, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those 
who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you would wish that others would do to you, do so to them. There are a million ways that we would rather respond to persecution than to bless our persecutors. But friends, we have to remember how we have been treated by our God. Right? We deserve cursing and condemnation. And yet we have received every spiritual blessing in Jesus. And the ones who are loved much should be the most ready to love others, even when they deserve the exact opposite of blessing and love. I pray that God would help us not just to obey this command, but to be this kind of person, one who responds to persecution with blessing instead of cursing. May God make it so. The second countercultural instruction in this passage is this. Number two, take the road of humility. Take the road of humility. That's how I summarize the commands in verses 15 and 16. Notice what we're called to in verses 15 and 16. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So to rejoice with those who rejoice requires incredible humility, doesn't it? Prideful people don't rejoice when others win. Here's one of the tests about if you're proud or not, whether there's pride in your heart. Do you rejoice when others win? Prideful people are jealous and resentful when other people are doing well, when things are going well for them. But humble people know how to celebrate the victory of others. It also takes humility to weep with those who weep, doesn't it? Prideful people do not identify themselves with people who are grieving. Prideful people never gravitate toward the weak and the downcast. Our proud tendency is to rejoice when others weep, that is to take pleasure in their misfortune, and to weep when others rejoice in envy. Promise number six of our church covenant says, we will rejoice at each other's happiness and bear each other's burdens and sorrows. This is what it looks like to be members together one of another. Members of the body of Jesus together, vitally connected to one another. It means that when you win, I win. It means that when you weep, I weep. So when someone announces that they are pregnant, we're to celebrate with them, even if we long for a child of our own. When someone gets engaged, we rejoice, even if we long for a spouse of our own. When someone gets promoted, we are happy even if we feel overlooked. When someone makes the team and we don't, we're to be the first ones to congratulate them on their accomplishment. Also, when someone is persecuted or wronged or grieved or experiences loss, we don't rejoice in that suffering. We weep with them and we come alongside them to bear the burden of their sorrow. And in this way, verse 16 says, we live in harmony one with another. 
You see, the goal, the goal is unity. The goal is to see our fundamental identity in relationship to each other, to the church, because God is glorified in harmony. God is glorified when we're together in sync with one another. Prideful people do their own thing. Prideful people exalt themselves and separate themselves from the group. They charge ahead of everyone else. But the path of humility prioritizes harmony with one another. I can slow down long enough to rejoice with you. I can slow down long enough to weep with you and help you bear that burden. Notice the clear command at the end of verse 16. Paul says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The word haughty means to be conceited or self-important. It's another word for pride or arrogance, but it sounds so much worse, doesn't it? No one likes to be haughty. I've never heard of someone going after haughty as a, a characteristic that they want people to know them as. Nobody thinks they are haughty, but we are haughty if we refuse to associate with the lowly. If we move away from those the world shuns, we are haughty. See, Christians are to be those who are not haughty, but associate with the lowest of the low. We're to be the kind of people who go sit with the one that no one wants to sit by in the cafeteria at lunch. We're to go sit by the, the people that get made fun of at recess. This is who we're to gravitate toward because we know that's who we are. Because we know that's who we are. This is just an, uh, another way to say, weep with those who weep. Associate with the lowly. Take the road of humility. There's another way to translate this phrase, associate with the lowly. If you have the ESV, the footnote says this could be translated, give yourself to humble tasks. Give yourself to the humble task. This is so challenging to me. If, if a Christian had a business card or a nameplate on their desk with their title, the job title under their name should be humble task doer. That's who we are. We're the ones who do the humble. Nobody wants to do the humble task. The task that no one notices. No one likes to pick up the trash or to clean up the throw up. But the road of humility is always the right road. The road that pleases the Lord. Notice Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. When's it okay to be wise in your own sight? Never. Oh, how we need to hear this deep in our own souls. We are wise in our own sight when we don't take advice from others. We are wise in our own sight when we don't learn from our mistakes and the mistakes of others. We are wise in our own sight when we refuse to change and grow. We are wise in our own sight when we don't pray and avail ourselves of the means of grace. We are wise in our own sight when we live isolated from one another. We're wise in our own sight when we refuse to admit that we are wrong and ask for forgiveness. Paul says, never be wise in your own sight. Pursue wisdom, yes, but not your own bankrupt wisdom. Friends, in this world full of evil and persecution and injustice, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices by taking the road of humility, just like our Savior who came not to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Take the road of humility. The third countercultural instruction in this passage is this. Be a peacemaker. Number three, be a peacemaker. Verse 18 is a verse we all need to have etched into our hearts. Look at verse 18. Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In a world full of sin and war and evil and injustice and hatred, we are called to be instruments of peace. Remember Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the sons of God. Peacemakers, those who labor for peace, show forth the character of our God. We are sons of God when we work for peace. As Ken Sandy says in his excellent book called The Peacemaker, peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They bring God's love and mercy and forgiveness and wisdom into the conflicts of everyday life. Peacemakers promote reconciliation and dissipate anger and bitterness. Are you known as a peacemaker? Do you tend to escalate or de-escalate conflicts? Do you dig your heels in when you're in a conflict? Or are you constantly seeking to move toward others that you disagree with? Of course, friends, the peace we pursue is to be real peace based on the truth of God's word. We're not seeking false peace. We're not seeking compromise, which is actually no peace at all. But by faith in Jesus, we are called to live peaceably with everyone. I've heard it said that we carry around, all of us carry around, two buckets with us. One bucket is full of water, and one bucket is full of gasoline. And when we encounter difficulty and conflict in everyday life, we can either pour gasoline on the conflict and make it worse, or we can be peacemakers and pour water on the conflict and quench it to bring resolution to it. Peacemakers breathe grace peacemakers are like shock absorbers they absorb the blows and they steady the ship notice that paul qualifies this command in verse 18 he says if possible as far as it depends on you live peaceably with all in other words sometimes it's not possible sometimes you've done all you can do now listen I think we give up way too easily sometimes, but it is possible to get to a point where there's nothing else you can say or do to live peaceably with someone. And notice that the command is to live peaceably with all. Not just those in our family or in our church family, but our goal is to have no broken relationships in our lives, to live peaceably with everyone in our lives. That's not possible if we live with anger and bitterness and jealousy. Friends, we must keep short accounts. We must overlook offenses when appropriate. We must rely on the gospel of Jesus to transform us into peacemakers that de-escalate conflict, not exasperate it. May God transform us in this way. May we be known as peacemakers who are sons of God, who reflect the peace that Jesus came to bring as the Prince of Peace. So what broken relationships exist in your life right now? What broken relationships do you have? 
What would be the next step in pursuing peace with that person? How could you take the road of humility and bless them instead of curse them, no matter how they have wronged you? Now, now listen, let me just include a parenthesis right here before we move on. None of these commands, in fact, I would argue none of the teaching of the Bible would encourage you to stay in an abusive relationship. You see, sometimes abusers can use passages like this very one to get you to not seek help and seek the authorities. Listen, if you are being abused, this is not saying you must stay and endure it. That's not what it's saying. For you, pursuing peace is getting help. And I pray no one else, I pray no one in this room is in that situation, but just wanted to make sure that that is clear. Do not allow abusers to use these texts to get you to not seek help. That's the third instruction. Be a peacemaker. The fourth countercultural instruction in this passage is never retaliate. Never retaliate. Now we've already seen this in verse 14. The command to bless instead of curse those who harm us. But notice it's even more clear in verse 17 and verse 19. Verse 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 19, Beloved, term of endearment, never avenge yourselves. So here's how Paul says we conquer evil with good. How do we conquer evil with good? We refuse to settle the score. We refuse to practice vengeance. Paul and Jesus teach us to never avenge the wrongs done to us. We are never to repay evil for evil. Now, as I pondered the topic of retaliation, I realized that many of the, my favorite movies have vengeance in the plot of the movie. Right? A man's family is murdered And in his grief, he schemes how to get revenge and tracks down the killers and the entire organization responsible for his family's murders. We like those movies because I think it causes us to live vicariously through the main character. Right? We wish we could do the same thing. We might have never had that kind of injustice done to us, but we like that feeling of wanting to make someone pay for what they have done. When you're young and your brother hits you, You hit him back twice as hard, right? When you're cut off in traffic, you want to cut that person off, and you sure aren't going to let them merge after cutting you off. When the neighbors call animal control on your pets, you look for an opportunity to get them back. And sometimes we repay in subtle ways, don't we? Sometimes we repay in, in ways that they don't seem so wrong. Like, we might try to pay someone back by just ignoring them and giving them the silent treatment, right? The cold shoulder, hoping to sort of punish them for what they said or what they did. Sometimes spouses can even withhold intimacy from one another as a way to repay some wrong. We think that holding a grudge against a person is a right response to that injustice. Or even worse, we bring others into our revenge by gossiping about the person or slandering someone who has wronged us. Can you believe what she did to me? Paul says that instead of repaying evil for evil, we should respond with whatever is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, the goal is to be a witness, an example of trust in the Lord. 
And Paul says that when we don't repay, but instead bless those who wrong us by giving them food, by giving them water. Notice what he says we do. We heap burning coals on their head. Now, what in the world does that mean? Should we carry around a warmer full of hot coals and just be ready to dump it on anyone who cross us? Obviously not. What is Paul saying? Well, it is a difficult metaphor because Paul doesn't tell us what this means. In fact, this is a quote from the book of Proverbs, so evidently it was a a sort of common metaphor to the original readers. But most scholars think that this is a metaphor that points to someone being shamed. It's a sign of shame, and hopefully in that shame, that person would repent of their evil. So in other words, when we're kind to those who harm us, It is often used of God to show them the error of their ways so that they would repent and turn away from their evil before it's too late. But however we understand this metaphor, the command is clear. It is never okay for a Christian to seek to avenge themselves or to repay someone evil for evil. It is never okay to retaliate, Paul says. Now in chapter 13, God willing we'll look at next week, Paul is about to say that one of the purposes of government is to punish evildoers. We're not to take matters into our own hands because God has given us authorities. The state will punish those who do evil as as a minister, as a servant of God in this temporary world. But our job, like our Savior, is seen in the final instruction that I want to highlight. Number five, entrust yourself to the just judge. This is the most countercultural command of this whole passage. Entrust yourself to the just judge. So the most important instruction of this passage, and really the theological foundation of all the responses to the wrongs done to us, is in verse 19. Paul says, the reason we don't avenge ourselves, the reason we don't pay evil for evil, is because God is a God of wrath. God has said, notice, God has promised, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now that's a quote from Deuteronomy 32, 35. God's people should not avenge themselves, but leave it to God. Why? Because God will right all wrongs in perfect justice. God will right all wrongs in perfect justice. When we repay evil for evil, It's an expression of unbelief in the wrath of God. When we take matters into our own hands, we are saying, God, I do not trust you to be the God of justice. In other words, we're to have an eternal perspective of the wrongs done to us. Even those who aren't punished in this life will be repaid on the day of judgment. God will judge even those who aren't caught in this life. God knows and God will judge See, punishment is a tool, and it's a tool that's not ours to use. Vengeance is God's. We can trust God to do what is right. He promises to repay. And the greatest picture and example of this is, of course, the Lord Jesus himself, right? Jesus is the embodiment of entrusting ourselves to the one who judges justly. Turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now keep your finger in Romans 12, but turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see this in verses 18 
through 23. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 18. Let's just read this slowly and gain all the wisdom we can from this instruction. Peter says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the just, to the unjust, excuse me. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then listen to verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what Paul, Peter, and Jesus are calling us to. To entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Like Jesus, we are not to retaliate. We are to entrust ourselves. We're to give ourselves. We're to hide ourselves in the one who is the just judge. And so when we respond to evil with good, when we bless those who persecute us, we aren't saying sin and injustice don't need to be punished. Please hear this. This intrinsic desire we have for injustice, it's a good God-given thing. And never are we saying evil shouldn't be punished. But rather we're saying because God punishes it, it's not my place to punish. That's what we're saying. And so when we forgive those who wrong us, we're either looking back to the past judgment of the cross or we're looking to future justice at the judgment when Christ comes. You see, if we forgive someone who's a Christian, we're looking back to the justice that's already happened in Jesus' death. That sin was paid for. I don't have to make them pay for that sin again. Jesus paid for it in full. If we forgive someone who's not a Christian, we're looking forward to the justice that God promises he will bring if they don't repent and trust in Jesus. God will avenge. And so entrust yourself to the just judge. He will right all wrongs, either on the cross or in hell. He will see to it that all sin and evil and injustice is punished. And today, as we move to the Lord's table... Let's be grateful that the just judge is also our father. He has adopted us as his own dear children. And Jesus is the perfect picture of what this passage is calling us to. He was beaten. He was killed unjustly. He never did one thing wrong. And yet he was treated like a criminal. And how did he respond? He did not repay evil for evil. He did not revile in return. He conquered evil with good. He forgave his enemies and showed kindness to those who persecuted him. Think about this. This this fact laid me bare this week. In Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus says, 
as he's being arrested, Jesus says that he could call on the Father and the Father would send more than 12 legions of angels to rescue him in that moment. Jesus could have wiped out his persecutors with a single word from his mouth. And he did not. Why did he not? He did not avenge himself. He did not repay evil for evil so that he could save us. So that he could redeem us from our evil and from our sin. And this is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. It reminds us of the Savior's determination to save us and to finish the work the Father had sent him to do. And so listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus right now, you should. You should trust Jesus right now. He is enough for you and every need that you have. If you trust him, he will forgive you and he will free you if you follow him. And if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you're not following him in relation to his church, You should not partake of the Lord's Supper. Only those who have confidence in Jesus' body and blood should partake as an act of faith in him. So as the music team comes and the guys who are going to serve the elements come, let's take a moment to examine ourselves. Let's freshly embrace all that Jesus is for us. Go to Jesus with whatever bitterness and anger and forgiveness and hardened heart that you have and hide yourself in his strong and sturdy refuge.